solve those contradictions. We are here to play in that realm of contradiction and cognitive dissonance. We are here to infect your mind. Did you look at anything to prepare? No. So what? No? <laughs> We're ringing it. It's okay. Um, I had these grandiose dreams of going through extensive research rabbit holes. And I made it through one and a half articles. <laughs> one of which wasn't even really relevant. I It's surprisingly difficult. I started, I tried to go through Google Scholar and use um, its higher level you know, academic filtering for psychology of games. Oh, yeah. And it was surprisingly difficult to find stuff targeted to what I was looking for. And I wasn't even looking for anything hyper-specific, right? But what tended to pop up were articles on psychological game theory as far as economic distribution and business marketing and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Game theory models for economic systems and business plans, not how do games both influence and are influenced by human psychology. Yeah, there is a good bit of behavior research for games, but it's all for performance enhancing so less like why and more like if you want to be you know like if your star pitcher is having issues these are things you can do um so more of like people who are already good at it um how do we keep them from you know getting wrapped up and being not as good because of things outside of the sport yeah, so I, I assume that this will end up being a multi-parter as well. We've been doing a lot of those lately because when we get into these conversations, there's just too much content to handle in a single episode or a single session, right? So I think what I'm going to do after this, and I know it's a little ass backwards to expand my research after we record the session well, talking about the topic yeah um Narrowly but not well it, it got me thinking about like why do children play mm -hmm. just in general why do animals like cats kittens right kittens are notorious for play puppies are notorious for play um and then then trying to dive deeper into, okay, well, for the human psychology, why do some games work and others don't, right? Why do we have this predictable series of games on a playground or, you know, board games, right? We can, we, there's evidence of some kind of board game systems going all the way back to like when the pyramids were built. Right. It seems to be an innate part of human psychology. Well, why? Mm -hmm. My favorite, like, Egyptian relic is a game that no one knows how to play, and they've tried to figure it out. 
but it looks just like checkers. Mm -hmm. Like presumably you move your pieces across and like try and take over the other side, but there's nowhere written down how to play it. Uh, but I think they do know the name of it. Um, people reference the game, but never how to. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not prepared to answer that on the spot, but I know of the. I know of the game that you speak. There's like one really good one that was found, um, you know, in a burial. Mm -hmm. And then pieces are found everywhere. Which leads us to the question then, aside from trying to fill spare time with something to do, why do human civilizations then tend to default to those types of forms of entertainment? Yeah. I think it does require free time, but even then, maybe not. Like a prerequisite is you have a lot of free time, then you come up with a game. But I think there are even like, you know, incredibly stressful environments where games are, you know, you make time. And that's what gets people through. But you probably don't make up a game from scratch if you're like on a desert island. No, and, and like philosophically, we can do the whole. Is there such thing as original thought? Mm hmm. Or is everything kind of recycled, right? Secondarily, I know this is a long, awkward pause. I'm trying to put my words together and find the right words for it. Um, Competition is a thing, and a lot of games and social interactions that humans use for entertainment are a way of having pseudo-competition, mm -hmm. but not all games are competitive. Right. So then obviously competition is a big thing. We we use competition for a variety of different reasons, a lot of which are archaic and aren't necessarily relevant so much anymore, at least in modern society, but some of which are right to um, organize ourselves into social hierarchies and things like that to demonstrate competence to win the eye of your crush and, you know, any, any sort of things. Um, Right. You could even go so far as to say that it, to some degree employment is a type of game in that manner, right? That mm -hmm. The quote-unquote game of life, right? How do we... How do we as young adults, hypothetically, because I'm not quite so young anymore, um, 
demonstrate to others that we are someone that is worth playing this game with and will be a healthy and supportive gaming partner that won't just sit back and let you do whatever you want to do, but also won't put enough restrictions on you to keep you from trying the things that you want to do. Right. And employment is one of those, one of those social signals that we use. Um, all right. That's why we have flashy cars and fashion and attire and all of that is, is to display that. Um, and then, you know, there's the variety of other social signals, but there are some activities that people participate in that aren't competitive, that aren't for those social signals. Um, I started reading an article on Animal Crossing and its release during the COVID pandemic and how it was expertly timed because people needed something that was quasi-social in an environment where they couldn't be social in the ways that we're used to. Now, I quit reading it because within the first paragraph, I found spelling and grammar errors, which suggested to me that it wasn't peer-reviewed thoroughly or it wasn't quality research material, right? Um, yeah, probably but I think we're not far enough away from the pandemic to be publishing stuff. <laughs> well, and, and you, I mean, we, we can we can make projections and we can use data that is available and we can generate data. Now the difficulty would be in using that data to make conclusions about causal factors. Mm -hmm. Right. Um you know, how did the COVID pandemic affect human psychology? Well, we won't know until we get a generation or two down the line, right? And then we can start seeing patterns of of deviation from the quote unquote norm pre-pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. But I brought that one up as an example, like that's one of those games where it doesn't, like you're not, you're not trying to best anybody, right? um the for people who don't know the game is played in real time so when you turn on the game at 8 a.m it's 8 a.m in the game as well and then you have little villagers and they talk to you and you can be friends with them and their shops um but the real draw is that you can improve upon your village by building things finding things getting money to buy things and then, you know, decorating. Um, so it's kind of just a very complicated decorating game. Um, and also collecting and like completing, you know, uh, like the museum, you can catch every type of fish in the game, every type of bug in the game. Um, and to me, like I have played the past four releases of Animal Crossing over probably 15 years. Um, and each one is the exact same game released again, and it's still fun. Um, and so I was thinking like, there's not any like problems in the game, but you do get like a rush when you do something and it looks good. And that's your signal that that was the right thing to do. You know, that looks good there. And so there's not like a clear, you did that right or you didn't do that right. You get to decide if that was right or not. 
um, which for some people makes it a little more stressful. They want to know, like, come on, give me some feedback and you never will get that. And then for other people, that makes it way less stressful. So I'm not sure how that fits in with other type of games where getting ambiguous feedback or none at all versus a clear, you know, the light in the room of a Zelda dungeon turns on and then you know you did it right. Yeah, it gives clear, you those audio, those audio cues yeah. too. Um, and that little ooh moment. I wonder if that has something to do with Because I, I went down a, a, a rabbit hole in my thoughts earlier when I started an article um, that explored some of the a more nuanced view of the positive and negatives of video games, including borderline addiction and, and things like that. And it got me thinking about like, what is a video game? Like what, what are the cognitive tasks required and why do people engage in it? And mm. what I was thinking was slash is, cause I, I haven't finished thinking on this. I'm still teasing through the layers that It's a simulated cognitive mapping, right? So when you first turn on a new game, what do you do? Well, you have to map like the button layouts. What do the buttons do? You have to map your, the interface. You have to map the actual map. Where are the places to do things, right? And the more accurately your cognitive constructions of how those things operate, are accurate and effective then the more efficiently you can participate in the game right and then all of that expands right that's why you have games like skyrim or zelda these massive mostly free roam games that they don't just turn you loose all the way at the beginning there's some form of very beginner's quest line that you go through that gives you a taste of all the different options and the different things at like the very low resolution level. So as you create your cognitive maps for how those work, right, you can create those maps accurately and then they turn you loose where you can apply those to the greater game and then get more detail in those cognitive structures, right? Now, how that relates to what you were saying with the Animal Crossing thing, I think, is that some people need more information to fill out their cognitive maps in order to interact with the game more than others. And I would be willing to guess that those people that do need that more information were those that were less rewarded with the ambiguous feedback from the game right hey what am i supposed to do whatever you want to and there's some people that are like okay that's too much freedom i it, it's instead of freedom of movement that's chaos 
I can't orient. I can't build a cognitive structure for how to interact with this game and orient myself to any task or purpose in this game to find any meaning or value in it. Right. So I'm going to put it down. Whereas there are those that the map can be lower resolution and you can still do the thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm thinking that like the common denominator for games and games that do well and games that don't do well is like having to solve problems and then the solution or finishing it is rewarding in some way. And so solving the problem might be, how do I kill every enemy in this hallway so I can get by? Or it might be, you know, I have a legit puzzle to do or like a fetch quest where a person is like, I need 10 berries and you go and do that. And then either going and doing it has to be fun or the reward has to be worth it, preferably both. And those are good games. And I think like big picture, having problems to solve is something that people really like. If you took away all of the problems and there was nothing left to think about or trial and error or experiment with, then that would be bad. <laughs> no one would like that out of life and out of video games. Well, I think to some degree that's what life is. Right. Every single day we are manifesting behaviors in such a way as to solve the problem of continued existence. We need to sleep. We need to eat. We need to use the bathroom. Right. There's all of these biological processes that we, if we wish to continue living, have to adhere to. And those create a certain set of problems. And, and I don't mean problems with a negative connotation. I'm, I'm using an ambivalent um, intention here of, you know, just like how to get to work is a problem. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad problem, but it is a problem. Right. I, it, even I have to secure a vehicle, even when I have the vehicle, right. I have to navigate traffic. I have to go from point A to point B. There's that travel time and that uncertainty and all of the, the things that go with that. And, and those biological things we call motivating operations. And it's something that the farther you get away from the last time, the bigger the motivating operation gets. And there's also abolishing operations, which is like motivating is I need to do this to get money. And abolishing is I need to do this to get rid of this thing I don't like, be that dirty dishes in the sink or something. Hunger. Mm -hmm. Right. I think um, that would be interesting to map that over Maslow's hierarchy of needs and to see which if there's any correlation between lower tier needs, such as sustenance, sleep, security, correlating with abolish motivations, and then higher tier needs like social acceptance, 
family self-actualization with um, the other motivator that you were talking about. I'm yeah, gonna... but they're the same thing. Like you can't add something without, you know, conservation of mass. If you're eating food to get rid of your hunger, you're also gaining satisfied feeling. So either one, um, it's kind of semantic. So yeah, motivating operations would work in every single situation as would abolishing operations. So yeah, but who would, who would we be? Or, you know, how would we call ourselves a cognitive dissonance podcast without arguing over the semantics? Right. Yeah. Well, to, to... Me, Go ahead. there'll be test questions that are like, is this an abolishing operation or motivating operation? Like, it depends on how you worded the question, not on the actual scenario. Um, so it's a, uh, it's purely a test question issue in real life. It never comes up except now. <laughs> well, cause I mean, to some level, if you think about things deeply enough, or you take things philosophically enough, the semantics do matter. Mm-hmm. It might not be a level that is particularly relevant to anybody at any point in time outside of this philosophical conversation, but it does matter. Um, I'm not going to be able to think of an example at the top of my head, but I mean, so like you could always use the whole, you know, Descartes, I think therefore I am in Nietzsche's response to it, which, and this is part of why I enjoy, enjoy and despise reading Frederick Nietzsche, um, Nietzsche's response to that was, okay, well, that is operating on the presumption, axiomatic assumption, that what you define as think and what I define as think are the same thing. And then what you define as existence and what I define as existence are the same thing, right? So yeah, he might be arguing semantics, but if you take the content of the conversation that deep, those semantics do matter. Yeah, it it's kind of tied in with motivating operations being the one thing in behavior that you simply can't measure and you just have to assume like in lab studies they will like, you know, set a timer and say the rat hasn't eaten in 3 hours, it'll probably be hungry soon. <laughs> but you don't know that cuz you can't ask the rat I can't tell you how hungry are you? There's not a number. So it ends up really complicating studies and results that you get because, you know, if you are in prison and you think I'm going to get out of prison if I say these things and you're very motivated to do that, then you can't be for sure that, you know, they're, uh, reformed because of these things, or if it was something inside. Um, so there's always the opportunity to say like, I don't think your experiment was necessarily accurate because of those things that we'll never know. Well, and this is something that, so I've been running the philosophy club at my high school, which, which is, it's been fun. It's a 
I work at a more difficult high school. It's the polite way of putting it. We have a decent amount of, like, we're, we're, we're a high need school. We have a lot of students in the foster care system. We have a lot of students that have experienced or participate in or have heard about or have had friends. We had a, in, from gang violence, we had a student a couple of weeks ago um, that got killed in some kind of gang violence, right? One of my students from last semester. And so like, not to be stereotypical, but some stereotypes at least have roots in accuracy that a lot of those students aren't going to be interested in things like a philosophy club. Right. So we, we, we never had great turnout, but I had, you know, anywhere from eight to eight to 12 students on any given time in any given meeting. And we had some pretty good conversations. Um, and I helped tutor the AP psychology students. Um, and something that I always kept bringing up to, to both groups was a lot of these things that we try and study, especially with the realm of like human behavior and motivations, you can't measure. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary, because it's, it's self-reported, right? It's not like I can draw your blood and say, oh, well, your biochemical levels were X, Y, and Z. So this, uh, you know, suggests that you're happy and that you're fulfilled or that you have ADHD or something like that. Now, there are some things we can use correlations right? As a way to measure, we know that stress has stress and anxiety have degradation effects on the body by being in fight or flight and high anxiety modes, your body tends to burn calories and burn itself out faster because if it has a choice of sustain or burn itself out to survive a risky situation, your body's going to default to burn itself out to survive the risky situation. Right. And that tends to increase cholesterol levels. It tends to increase blood pressure. It tends to shorten average lifespans. We know all of these things. And we can correlate that over the self reporting. Right. We can correlate that over the self reporting to get fairly accurate happiness measures, even though it is self reported. Um, but, but a lot of things is, you know, how do we measure identity? You can't. You have to rely on, right. You have to rely on, on, on the social signals that that individual displays and what they say, right. Um, you know, how do you measure satisfaction? How do you measure aggression, you know, outside of those physical actions? How do you measure, um, achievement, desire, any of these things? Well, we, 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 you know, what do you do? There's no one's figured it out yet. So that that's what makes psychology so fascinating because it is to some degree like the wild west of the sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also what makes it really tricky and complicated sometimes because, well, if I could just find this piece of evidence, I could confirm or deny my theory. Well, you're not going to find that piece of evidence. Right. <laughs> That's why um, you have so many different subdisciplines within psychology, right? I think I think you and I are a good example. We're we're different. You're a more analytical behaviorist. Measure what you can measure and use that to extrapolate conclusions from. Where I'm yeah. more of a 
cognitive psychoanalyst, right? How, why do people make decisions the way that they do? It's not simple enough to reduce it to the animal attacked me because it was hungry and I backed it into a corner. Right. There's there's more at play there, especially as you talk about more complicated and complex organisms than the motivational structures, the cognitive function of those organisms are going to be more complicated and complex correspondingly. Right. My kids do what they do partly because they're kids partly because they're human, partly because they are uniquely them, partly because they're figuring things out, partly, you know, there's, it's, it's a whole panoply of factors that play in. Um, most of which are extraordinarily difficult to even put into words, let alone have some sort of data chart for right what sort of scientific measurements can we use to figure out what a kid wants to be when they grow up and why right sometimes it is really simple i want to be a soldier because my dad was a soldier right you can see that that through line we're there very quickly a lot of times it's not right i'll have some high schoolers that you know well i want to be a pediatric cardiologist Okay, A, that's hyper-specific, right? Um, B, why? And, you know, there's the element of they want to help people or whatever, but there's just like, like a million different ways to help people. So why that one for you? Right? What? How is it that your brain works that makes that tick, that pushes you in that direction? And that thinking about those topics gives you that self-satisfaction and reward systems to continue pursuing that as a dream right yeah there's only one person my friend who became a veterinarian said from you know time she could talk she was going to be a vet and that's what happened i think most people don't do that i would guess because the you know once you start college there's different factors that you start responding to versus I'm at home. My mom cooks me breakfast. I go to school for eight hours. My mom picks me up. We eat dinner as a family. I do homework. We go to bed. Pediatric cardiologist sounds great under those circumstances. And then things change. So I would wonder how many people really stick with what they said they were going to be. Yeah, that would be an interesting study. Um, and I was just thinking as as you were explaining that, um, that that's what games do. They give us practice in that flexibility with our cognitive mapping. Yeah. Right. Where as environments change, as circumstances change, as our relation to the world changes, because to some very real degree, for example, William, he's going to turn 10 on Thursday. And I'm going to do the typical, do you feel any older? And he's going to say no, 
Right, because he doesn't, because that change is small enough over a long enough amount of time that it's almost Im imperceptible in those small chunks, right? You have to stand back and look at the larger chunks, the lower resolution in order to see those changes. Um, but we, we do, we ontologically and metaphysically change. And as we undergo those changes, our cognitive maps aren't accurate anymore. And they subsequently need to change to either be um, reflective of new information or, um, you know, adapt to new problems. Maybe it's not external information. Maybe it's internal information that needs to change. We think about things differently. Maybe our environment's the same, but the way we understand our environment is different, right? And that's going to, all of those things are going to demand changes to our cognitive mapping, which is probably why if i had to guess that most people would rather pick a known discomfort to deal with than risk change right and, and, and we know this right people in um people in abusive relationships that aren't abusive enough to like feel for their life, but everybody, including them, recognizes unhealthy, will deal with it because yeah. they have that that area cognitively mapped and they know how bad it can be. If you break up with that person, then you have the whole slew of uncertainty, which is reflected in the form of anxiety and who knows how much worse life could be? I could be alone and miserable. At least here, I'm miserable with somebody. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I think that's that driving factors there is people, um, people stay in areas where their cognitive maps are more accurate because it's easier. And people tend to have a, I'm going to call it a survival instinct, and we can come back to to explore the evolutionary psychology behind it in a minute. That survival instinct to stay where their cognitive maps are most accurate, even if those environments are less than ideal. Mm -hmm. So another thing I was thinking about, as far as games go, was um, role acquisition and role clarity. Mm-hmm. Right now, obviously, this applies most with like role playing games, but even even not, I guess you know, even games as banal as Animal Crossing or something like that would still have this in, where the beauty of games, as far as translatable skills to life experience and lived experience and stuff like that is you get those short-term bursts of trying different things right you can assume the role of something that is not you in whatever way whether it's not your attitude not your temperament not your physical body right you can create an avatar that is completely alien to what you're used to being embodied in that you can try those things out and see if they work and if they do you can adapt some of those 
experiences and dispositions and apply them to your own embodied lived experience. So playing the game enhances the lived experience outside of the game. Right. So like, this is how a warrior behaves mm -hmm. and you embody these traits in the game to be successful. And you can translate some of those into your everyday life, being courageous, taking risks, considering others, right? Health of your squad in whatever game you're playing helps as a predictor for success in the task, right? Which is going to condition you to have a more defined role clarity and be considerate of others, right? If you're working as a team on a project at your work or something like that. Yeah, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound particularly different from the way we justify like tying sports and academics together so closely. We're like, these skills apply. <laughs> um, and they are doing a lot more like esports in high schools. I don't think they're young at all but definitely in high schools definitely in college um and the team aspect you know it has to be a video game that has a team aspect i don't think there's any like esports skyrim people um so yeah there's something to that no but i mean even even something not necessarily team driven Right, but a one-player game that is story-driven still gives you those elements of using experiences in the game to modify your behavior in the real world. Right, perfect example. Um, if anybody's familiar with the Fable series, um, I played all of them and those are games that are relatively open world and you can you know relatively have choices you can be evil and still complete the game you can be good and still complete the game and there's going to be some aesthetic changes there's going to be some visual changes to your character and like the way that the npcs interact with you the non-player characters the way they interact with you in the game is, is going to vary depending on your disposition but it's not going to change the game Right. And even in those situations, at least for me, I found myself if if I was placed in a position where even in a game I could do something horrible with no repercussions whatsoever, I tended to not. Mm -hmm. Right. You can have that mimicry of empathy. Now, part of that was because I was approaching the game with my own sense of morality and I wasn't relying on the game to instill a sense of morality in me. But I think that's fascinating to, to view it that way, that
even in even in artificial constructions where you can do whatever you want to most people have those experiences in the game as the protagonist as the head of the story the lead in the story whatever it is you know and we get a big parallel here with um like movies and media and pop culture and stuff like that where we understand that this is how the lead behaves and i'm trying to be the lead so this is how i'm going to try and choose to behave yeah like the appeal of westerns when westerns were the only movies in theaters every blockbuster was a western and then today where every blockbuster is a superhero movie the lead per person well sometimes they are like a gray hero very few villains though um well i, I mean it, 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 even then like we have this idea that and let's get like super nerdy here for a minute and i know this is a, like a psychology podcast so it's kind of as nerdy as it's going to get but let's get a little nerdier with it um infinity war versus endgame mm -hmm. i prefer the infinity war instantiation of thanos as a relatable villain as opposed to the end game version of thanos because the end game version of thanos hasn't been humbled i know i hated that right he didn't have to kill gamora to get to where he's at he didn't have to do those things and and, and i th i think they they did a fantastic job displaying that in the movies and that um the way the character was both played and portrayed was different to reflect that but part of it part of it for me is that even though the infinity war thanos was the villain and the bad guy he was relatable right you could see where he was coming from it was his ends justify the means and his methodology that made him a bad guy not his intentions. Mm -hmm. I did always like that. And that was something like with video games, I'm floundering for an example, but for movies like Magneto as a villain is the best villain ever because you get why he's like that. <laughs> Cause mm -hmm. he's right. Like that's like the meme, like Magneto was right because he's like, the humans are going to kill all the mutants. So we got to fight back. And then all the other mutants are like, no, Magneto, you're wrong. And then every couple comic arcs, the humans try and kill all the mutants. And so you get like why he's wronged, why he's doing that. And he's not just evil laughing in the corner. Like no one cares about, you, you know, such a shallow villain. We're like, okay, that's obviously the bad guy. Um, It's so much better when you can see why they are doing this um i think a game that's really bad about that is the evil dead series the villain is always evil just to be evil they just want to split spread a zombie plague no reason no tragic backstory they just are like this is right i'm gonna kill all humans and it's not very compelling 
you know, it was, that was what people, I don't know, we've, we've very much improved on villains for that reason. Um, Cause I almost lose interest or it just pisses me off. Like having to watch a whole scene with a person who's just talking about how much they hate something and you never glean any of like, well, I can see that perspective. Um, I mean, you're going about it all the wrong way, but you're not wrong. Uh, the same thing with uh, Black Panther, the villain of that was kind of right, but, you know, can't murder people. So that's where it ended. But that's why they took him down. Otherwise, nothing wrong with what he was saying. Yeah, I wonder if that's... Reflective of how it of how rare it is to have that psychological disposition where you are so narcissistic and are so psychopathic, so high on the dark triad or the dark um, tetrad personality traits to where it doesn't have to make sense. You just want to be evil, right? The percentage of people like, cause I mean, there are some people that do just want to watch the world burn, but the percentage of that per capita at any point in time in any civilization has always been so low. It's almost non-existent. Whereas those people that are in varying different ways, higher on the dark, triad or dark tetrad personality traits um but not wholly right maybe they lean a little bit more narcissistic or they lean a little bit more sadomasochistic um tends to be a little bit more higher right yeah, and, and, and go ahead Oh, the yeah, I'm thinking of like examples of people who were evil just to be evil. And genuinely, the only one that comes to mind is BTK, who had no reason to kill all those people and did it just because like later on, he justified it by being like, I'm a Satanist. But he was just saying that to get people to think he was evil, you know, like not actually doing like Satanist things. Um, it just fit with the image he was going for. But for the most part, people will be able to give you an explanation or feel sorry, at least. Be like, I don't know why I did that. I wish I didn't. Almost never do you get someone who's just like, and I do it again um, for no reason. Yeah, there, there tends to be like predictable self-fulfilling prophecies. And I don't know if that's the, the best way to phrase it, but it's the only thing I can think of it at the moment um, with things like that. So um, one of the classes I took in my graduate program was a... Um, History of Sex Abuse in the Catholic Church, the Catholic Sex Abuse Crisis. Um, and 
one of the common denominators that had a super high correlation with those behaviors was most of the priests that victimized youth were themselves victimized when they were youth. Mm -hmm. Right. And that gave them whatever psychopathology instilled in them, whatever psychopathology that manifested in a continuation of those behaviors, but as a perpetrator, as opposed to a victim. Yeah. It is common that they were a victim in the past. Um, and that doesn't happen to everyone. Like, uh, it's also like, you know, every serial killer had a horrible childhood and they were locked in closets and beaten half to death every day of their childhood. But a lot of people do that and they go and become an accountant and live their life. So, you know, for there is a way to stop the cycle and you choose not to at some point. Um, and I think at a certain point, like, there were priests joining the Catholic church specifically because they knew that was a good place to abuse people that they would have access. And it had kind of gotten out to do that. Um, similarly to, you know, like high school teachers who, you know, prey on their students serially. Um, they got into, you never have like a, veteran teacher who just finds the one you know it's always like 24 year old teacher but it's because they wanted access to that age group and knew how to get it and you know a lot of times they're not consciously think like signing and laughing evilly to themselves that they're going to do that um but the motivation was definitely part of it yeah which which leads us back to you know how do we measure that Okay, two-parters. How do we measure that? And then if we can, what sort of preventative mechanisms would be able to be put in place? Because like you said, not everybody goes down that route. And it's for a variety of different reasons. Um, support structures, healthy coping mechanisms, their cognitive mapping of their place in reality is sufficient enough to allow them to actually process that trauma as opposed to, you know, Freudian repression. And then it manifests in adverse behaviors later in life. Um, so like, you know, how do we measure that? Is there a battery that we could put together? Hey, have you had this type of trauma in your past? Right. So use the, um, seminary example if you've had examples of x y and z trauma in your past then you're a red flag for admission into this seminary program to become you know part of the the priesthood and then if we can how justified are we as a society in gatekeeping those people That's a good question because there are predictors that make someone more likely to commit certain crimes. And the one that people like kind of the like cutting edge, like we need to figure this out is school shooters who are students and like school counselors. How do they know? Um, because once that cat's out of the bag, 
pretty bad. So the main, the only reliable factor is talking about it. So if you have a kid who says they're going to shoot up the school, that's the kid. I mean, it sounds like stupidly simple, but that's what it is. If you have a grown man who's joking about touching children or talking about it with others, that's the person who's going to do it. And the, you know, the same with like the bravado, like, oh, I've got a gun. I'll shoot someone who, you know, saying it, the people who talk about it are the ones who do it for the most part. Very few people never voice those thoughts and then do it. And the caveat to that is that the idiots who talk about it get caught more often. So that's possible that that data is kind of skewed because um, like you're already working, you know, that's mm -hmm. so it's possible that there are just like better criminals who don't talk about it, but that's really it. Googling it, interacting with that crime through, you know, other socially acceptable ways um, is the one to look out for, which is why like making threats is taken so seriously because that usually happens right before, um, you know, the post on Facebook or like cryptid threats. Um, and those are, yeah, I mean, it seems harsh. Sometimes you see some kids get caught in that web where that wasn't very fair. Um, you know, they're getting way overly punished for a joke that they made or something, but there's a good reason for that. And I, you know, it's tough to feel sorry when you think of, you know, we have to do it this way. Um, yeah, and but uh, it, better to have that reaction than to miss a kid. Right. In, in in a lot of cases, in I tell my students this, especially when they joke about suicide or something like that. Right. Oh, if I fail this test, I'm going to kill myself. I'm like, look, first of all, don't. Right. So just so we're clear. Second of all, like, you know, it might be a joke or you might be coming across as trying to be funny with it. But that is one of those things where like I'm obligated to overreact because if I yeah. underreact and something happens, right, I'm legally, morally, and ethically liable in some capacity. Right. Yeah. Um, but then th this always leads me back. And, and I ask this of my philosophy club students quite often. Right. Think of, um, have you seen that Tom Cruise movie minority report? No, I haven't. Where they have, it's one of mom's favorites. Um, you should you should watch it. It's pretty good. But they have the pre-crime division, right? So it's set in the, uh, the, near, yeah. the near future, right? Where they have the psychics that predict crime and they have the digital apparatuses with which they can um, process that information and create um, the scenarios to identify what's going to happen and who's going to do it and blah, 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 whatever. Um and then they go and they intervene. But that always begs the question for me of and this ties in with the whole policy making thing. This is why policy is such a, a tricky thing to figure out. especially in our Western democracy judicial system that operates on two fundamental premises that you can choose your behaviors, right? You have some semblance of free will and that we all have the presumption of innocence, right? Innocent until proven guilty. Um, 
that until someone engages in that behavior, any sort of intervention is a violation of their individual sovereignty and individual rights. Yeah. And so, and so how do we, how do we as a society balance those things? How do we personally balance those things? Right. If one of my kids says something and it's a red flag for me and I intervene, does the fallout of that intervention create a higher probability that they're going to engage in miscreant behavior later? Right. Because now they had to deal with, with discipline and they had to deal with punishments and you know, that conditions them in such a way, whatever, to where they're going to blah, blah, blah. Or if I'm going to get in trouble anyway, I might as well actually do it. Yeah, um, that situation is a problem. Right. And and so, like, and, and, you know, we have that that quantum entanglement thing where interaction with the observer influences the outcome of the experiment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and this is an open question. It's also kind of a rhetorical question because I don't think any of us have that answer of how do we balance between erring on the side of caution and respecting people's individual liberties there that's a tough question in the field of behavior as well because you can you know like if I had everything in a plan that would stop this behavior that would be unethical you have to do the least amount of intervention possible that will still have a positive effect and what we're required to do ethically is a risk benefit analysis for everything which is like you can't do it for everything i do one per person about the thing i'm kind of iffy about but like supposedly every single thing you sit down like if uh, we're going to change the way that, you know, staff talk to this person, um, we're going to have them, you know, knock and say, hey, can we chat versus what they were doing before. You're supposed to sit down and write a list of risk of that intervention and a list of benefits of that intervention. And then at the end, usually for me, I can figure out what I need to add or take away from it to make it more beneficial than uh, risky or harmful, but for someone who hasn't done anything yet, um, it's, you can't write an intervention for things that you haven't seen because it might not look how you expect. Like if you know, this kid has a high level of aggression, they're very angry and the parents are going through a divorce and they're hunters. And you know, all of these things for violence are there. Um, it looks different you know, that kid might go and shoot, you know, the windows out of an abandoned building. And that's enough for that kid. And then the next one has to go, you know, and shoot people or the other one has to shoot themselves. And those all same risk factors, there's too much overlap to pick, you know, to even know what you're supposed to respond to. So yeah, if nothing has happened yet, I don't know what you do besides those baseline things that you would do for anyone, like, uh, you know, referrals to the counselor, um, a call home, and, yeah, increased bag checks, who knows. 
which in and of itself is is tricky too because there's a decent now it's been about 10 years since i've looked at this literature but there's a decent body of literature that suggests that the more interventions you have in I don't want to linger here too long, but just because it's germane, we can stay in the realm of school safety for a minute. Generally, the more interventions you have in the name of school safety, the less secure students feel in the school. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, well, the big example is metal detectors. Mm -hmm. Right. If you're an inner city school and you install metal detectors because you have students that have a history of bringing weapons to school for a variety of different reasons, even if there's no intention to use them at school, maybe it's outside of school gang violence and they just want to be safe on the way to drive home, or maybe they're planning a drive-by on the drive home from school or whatever. Um, it doesn't particularly matter. What does matter is that the installation of the metal detectors, which would normally be a deterrent and a safety and security device tend to be the visual reminders for the students that they are in an unsafe environment. Otherwise, they wouldn't need them, right? And so they tend to behaviorally respond accordingly, heightened anxiety levels, um, on edge more heightened aggression, all of those panoply of behaviors and things, right? Yeah. Which is just an, another one of those what are the consequences of intervention in that the fact a, that i'm thinking of a, a couple weeks ago where like 50 cops drove by our house with their lights blaring and it was like in bursts of like five cops at a time and you know like oh there's a lot of police in the neighborhood today oh shit <laughs> versus you know oh, i feel safe they're here um like it makes you say oh no it's like seeing that many responders at one time mm -hmm. well and, and this is something that i try and remind myself and i don't know a way to put this that's not calloused um i don't know if there is a way to put this that's not calloused but specifically the past two or three generations of Western democracy citizens have been in areas and societies that are affluent enough to condition us to incorrectly think that life is supposed to be secure and safe, right? That we're supposed to have safety and security that we're supposed to have enough to eat that we're supposed to have a job that can pay the bills and none of that is true right even just a hundred years ago the average life expectancy in the united states was like 40. 150 years ago the life expectancy in the united states on average was like 37. Mm -hmm. right um when Julius Caesar invaded Gaul, which is present-day France and Germany, in, you know, the 60s BC. There were an estimated 6 million people 
Gallic Celts living there. By the time he was done, a million of them were killed, estimated, and a million more. Like a third of the population was either killed or sold into slavery. Mm -hmm. Like public executions used to be a thing. Um, for 99% of human history, we have had to violently scrape by and we live at a time now where that's non-existent where people like no people don't starve to death in the united states or in great britain or in canada unless of course it's like deliberate mistreatment right you're a kid in an abusive household and you get locked in the basement for whatever right um people aren't publicly executed you know we in most of most of the states don't even have the death penalty anymore for things um i listen to a podcast dan carlin's hardcore history and he talks a lot about like old school executions and people getting convicted of stuff where right we using the political culture of today we understand that if someone does get sentenced to death in the criminal justice system like the death is the punishment right you've been by a jury of your peers found guilty of something so egregious that your punishment is to lose your right to life and liberty right for most of human history that was just an unhappy byproduct the torture and the execution method was the punishment mm -hmm. and you just happened to die from being getting broken on the wheel or or some or getting drawn and quartered or something like that right um and, and here's the way that that i understand it because i see it with my teenagers in in my classroom right my students act this way that because we have the false conclusions based on partial short-term evidence, and I'm going to be clear here and say that when the teenagers draw their conclusions, they're false not because the teenagers are making wrong conclusions, but because their body of evidence is small enough that they don't have enough evidence to draw the accurate conclusions, right? Um, those are two, it, it's, it's not like they're willfully blind, they're don't have enough access to enough of life experience and information to have the accurate conclusions. The conclusions that they're drawing are accurate for the body of evidence they're given. Um, but they've been conditioned to expect that they are supposed to graduate high school, that they are supposed to be successful, that they are supposed to have a good paying job that they are supposed to be well-liked and supposed to be popular and supposed to be safe. And so when any of those things don't happen, it's viewed as an affront to the natural order of things. It's viewed as systemic oppression. It's viewed as and responded to with disproportionate aggression and grievance to a situation that was never guaranteed to begin with, right? If you, if you show up to my class and you do nothing but sleep or play on your phone and I fail you, 
which I remind my students, I don't give them grades, they earn grades. So you earn a failing grade in my class, right? I have students that throw fits. I have like their family members call up. I have parents that call to try and get their grade changed because Bob, right? Because they're operating under that axiomatic presupposition that they are supposed to be successful regardless of their human input. And so when they aren't, they respond to that disproportionately in, <clears throat> in ways that come across as entitled, mm -hmm. right? Come across, uh, I could find any other euphemisms um, and, and continue on. Um, but I, I, I hope you get the, the point that I'm making with that and the direction I'm going with that, that We have created enough success as a human species in most of the world that that success is we're starting to see long-term changes in human psychology because of that success. I think my hang up for that is like the constitution allegedly is promising those things and like life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, all of those rights. And we pay taxes. <laughs> so it does seem unfair that those are promised and we pay money and we elect people who get paid a lot of money to do those things. And then as a country, it doesn't get done to me. Well, in that context, the anger is justified. Yeah, but your phrasing of it is is absolutely backwards, though. The Declaration doesn't promise us those things. It recognizes that we have those rights. Right? Government doesn't give us our rights. We already have them. Government is just an apparatus used to help prevent other people from stepping on those rights and paying our taxes is not the price that we pay to have access to those rights right so that it's that's the difference between like the john locke version of negative rights versus like the jean jacques rousseau french version of positive rights where john locke in the english tradition would say that the only reason we have government is to intervene if someone is trying to take away your inherent natural rights, right? That's the, the negative rights there. And the Jean-Jacques Rousseau French positive rights is more along the lines of it is the government's job to actively pursue ensuring those things for people. Now, what I see as the problem there is um, internal locus of control versus external locus of control. If it is the government's job to make sure that I'm successful, it's not my responsibility to do that anymore. I don't have to go get a job to pay the bills. I can just demand universal basic income. I don't have to eat healthy to make sure that I have a good life. I just demand universal basic health care and make the government fix me. Right? You see how it's putting, putting the cart before the horse or the horse before the cart, right? makes a big difference in that outcome there. And we have an increasing number of people, and this goes back to the cognitive mapping thing, that we have an increasing number of people that are comfortable 
not pursuing anything with their own free will because they operate under the presumption that it is the government's job to make sure that I have these things. And so when it doesn't happen because they're not using their human agency to go out and earn it, then the whole system's fundamentally flawed and we need to tear it all down, disrupt and dismantle. Well, I'm thinking that the government does, like if a forest fire were to destroy my neighborhood, we would be put in housing by the government who declared a state of emergency and secured federal funds to, you know, rebuild our neighborhood. And, you know, then our insurance would have to do something about it too. But the they do do that. Side note really quickly that we've done a very good job so far in all of our episodes of staying clear of politics, mm-hmm. right? For a variety of different reasons. Um, but two things. First of all, this political discussion does pertain to human psychology. So it is on topic for the... Um, scope and purpose of this podcast and also to um i think this is a conversation that needs to be happening more in the public discourse so i'm comfortable continuing it um pick up where you i have some thoughts and i disagree with you about some things but i want to a respect your opinion and let you finish speaking um, and be here where you wanted to go with it. You were talking about the forest fire thing. Yeah. Cause I think the idea that the government, that there's nothing like obligate about social services, but they, if a emergency happens and there's a forest fire and you have to leave your house, they have, places where you go and where you evacuate to set up. And if your house does burn down, there's federal money and state money to fix the neighborhood and the roads and the power line and the sewers and anything else that burned down. Um, They, you know, put things back when they get broken. And the other thing that they do that the government really does is you know the armed forces to make sure no one kills us all and i think that those you know the uh, no one can come to our shores and start killing everyone because of the government and So it doesn't make sense to me that there, I mean, yes, like there is entitlement in there, but these are all things that the government are doing. So if it's not something that you're benefiting from, but that the government is actively doing, I can see why there's that frustration there. Like, um, yeah, like with healthcare, if you need an emergency something, they will just do it. Like if you're in a car accident, you get life-saving care right away. And then afterwards, you know, you settle the debts. But when it's needed, it's there. There's food banks, there's shelters, there's um, like when it gets really hot in Portland, they do cooling tents. And all of that is not just grassroots 
people doing it. Some of it is, you know, some people make their careers off of their nonprofit that they do, but a lot of it is just government money and government officials organizing, setting these things up, declaring states of emergency when needed to get, you know, and that was something that like with the example for me is Hurricane Katrina, where like the response was not stellar for the first like three days. And then it kind of picked up and what you were seeing was, you know, people spelling out like SOS with salt on their roof and who had been there for 72 hours and no one had come to save them yet. And that is the government's job. That's why we pay taxes. And that's why we elect people who are going to provide those when needed. And it's sort of understood that if you don't need it, you don't use it. Like if my neighborhood isn't in a forest fire, I'm not going to go to the evacuation spot that other people are going to. I'd only do that if I needed it. And there are people who, you know, don't need it and feel entitled to it and people who exploit, um, you know, these social services and emergency services. But for the most part, we tap in when we need it, tap out when we're done. And then, you know, sometimes you can't tap out. Like if I get my legs cut off in a car accident, I'm getting SS immediately. <laughs> um, so that social security check is coming right away, right? Um, versus, you know, you don't get social security if you're not, <laughs> if your legs are still there and you can walk around and you can go to work again. Um, so yeah, I, I I just disagree with the idea that they don't have to, and it's not obligate because so far it is. And if it's not, people will, you know, riot. Like there's nothing more dangerous to the government than a food riot. Like so far, <laughs> whatever the score is, if there's a food shortage, you know, zero. I mean, I'm thinking of France specifically. They did not win that. You know, they had all the resources that they needed and hungry peasants killed them all. Uh, viciously. And then, you know, that was French Revolution. So I think that those, that that idea has always been there, that that's what the government does. And if they don't do that, they will be killed. Yeah, but see, there's a couple We're things. We're not as barbaric <laughs> right well, now. There's a big difference in saying that we as an advanced society have developed social organization that affords us these opportunities to have social safety nets versus saying that it is the government's job to make sure that I'm successful. Mm -hmm. Those are two different things. Um, right. The, 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 France food shortage thing, yes, you're right. When people get hungry, they do what they have to to survive. But arguably that was because of meddling from government programs to begin with. Right. If the government programs... Yeah, it was their fault that there wasn't any food, so all of the people killed them. No, not necessarily. It wasn't the government's fault that there wasn't food. It was the government's fault that they were overtaxing the poor to where the government, the poor couldn't afford food. Mm. But that's a different problem. 
Right. And in fact, you could use that as an argument against your claim of that's why we pay taxes. Because if we have all of these federal and state funds just sitting around doing nothing, why are we continuing to get taxed? Right. If all they have to do is snap their fingers and they have access to all of this, why does the government have that? Why don't the people that the money comes from have that money to deal with, right? If we have guaranteed government rehoming because of forest fires, why do we pay insurance, right? Why is that a requirement to have a mortgage? If we have an inherent right to housing, why do I pay a mortgage, if we have an inherent right to food, why do I have to pay Food Lion anything or Walmart anything, right? And, and I think those aren't, I think we have continued to evolve the government apparatus to be something that it's not supposed to be, right? And I'm thinking, um, and I mean, it can go all the way back to Woodrow Wilson in his 14 points speech in World War One. You can do FDR with his Four Freedoms speech that he gave to Winston Churchill during World War II, right? People have the inherent, on top of our natural rights, we have the inherent freedom from hunger and freedom from whatever. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think you have a right to food. I don't have a right to food. The lion doesn't get to go picket the gazelle because the gazelle doesn't want to get caught and eaten. Right? If you I have think an that would make sense if it was possible for like what we've done to the landscape of our country, if the grocery store closes, I can't feed myself. And we've created a system where if the system breaks, there's not a fallback. I the only thing I could probably eat in my neighborhood is the acorns, and those aren't very good. Um, there's a couple of squirrels, I guess, but I don't have any equipment to catch or eat them. So if someone else is in charge of that, of keeping the grocery store open, of shipping the food in, of growing the food, buying, sourcing everything and bringing it in. And so because it's another person and not just the earth, I think that I do have a right to what that person has set up because it's not just coming from the earth and I can say, you know, like, well, we better move to a different apple grove. Those that doesn't exist anymore. And so without that, like social pressure and without the threat that the, you know, the people that you govern and are in charge of will kill you if there's no food, um, like that still happened. I forget where it was, but there's something like two years ago where a bunch of people just stormed the like officials because there was no food. Was and that yes, thank you. Um, and so that, and that was because of hyperinflation and because their government decided in their infinite wisdom that they were going to go to um, net zero carbon footprint. And by doing so, they inadequately produced enough food because they were trying to adhere to these globalist agendas that felt good and sounded good on paper, as opposed to incrementalism in ways that were sustainable. But back to the whole, you do make a point with the urban center thing. Urban food deserts are a very real thing. However, if that is the case, that we have inherent right to access the food distribution of farmers and 
truckers and process centers and distribution centers like Walmart or Food Lion, what incentive are there for people to open those grocery stores to begin with? Because the whole premise behind it is that they are providing a good and service. And in turn, you as the customer are going to pay for those goods or services. That's not a right. Right. Well, they make money. So that's their incentive. Yeah, no. but are are if you have a right to that product, then you don't have to pay them. Now you might you might argue is, you might argue a right to access. Yeah, I guess which, what is, I'm which is slightly different. The if someone kills you because they're starving and you did not feed them, that's on you, and that per, like it's totally justified in my opinion for like when there are resources there and you're not allowed to access them for some reason and it's the difference like if you have all the land I mean that's what we've been doing for years like you have the best spot on the river and you never go hungry and I have a terrible spot I'm gonna kill you and take over this area and you know we've been doing that tribally forever so to me it's like that threat is still there. And to me, that's extremely natural. Like, hey, you have that and I want that. Um, and I need to have that. And if you don't make a way for me to get that, I will kill you for it, which still happens. Like we just said, like in Sri Lanka. Yeah, but we all recognize that that's wrong. That that's still murder. Yeah. Right. Because say what you want about whether that person is a trustworthy character or a good person or whatever. Um, someone's desire to have something better is not a good justification for depriving of the person that has better of their inherent natural right to life or liberty or pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. Well, you can say that, but in practice, that's what happens. Yeah, like, but, but, but that's a diplomatic where the, you know, the oppressor came to their senses or something. It always yeah, but, takes a pretty significant physical threat to their life in order to see. But that's, <laughs> that's, that's a terrible reasoning though. Right. It, the, the, the logic behind that 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 somehow is justified behavior because that's how people are going to act anyway right that would be the same as me saying i shouldn't get a ticket for speeding because everybody just already speeds anyway now obviously like threat of death from the mob versus a citation for speeding in a residential area or is comparing apples and oranges but i view it as the same logical argument behind it the whole thing that makes western democracies remarkable is that we recognize that that what you're describing is standard human behavior and we want to reduce the chances of that standard human behavior of occurring 
mm-hmm. right? Not to give in to the demands of the mob, because if we don't, then that's just going to happen and that's okay, right? That's 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 not okay. That's still bad behavior. Does that, does, am I making sense with that? I feel like I, I was very unclear with how I was coming across with that. I think so, but... I think the practicality, like if you stand like back to the French Revolution in Versailles and say they shouldn't do that, that's wrong, you're dead anyways. So like having the moral high ground in those situations doesn't help. It doesn't feed the people who are hungry and it doesn't keep them from killing you. And the mob like impressing their will i guess like imp- the mob impressing their will if they gave into the demands that would solve the problem they would have food and they would get to live it's when they don't give in to the larger social groups demands is when that happens and it's like the in group out group at that point where we consider you know Okay, who is the threat? Who is in the in-group? Who is in the out-group? And sometimes it doesn't work out very, like, you know, every time something happens in a big city, there's looting. And so that's where the in-group, out-group gets, we've done it a little wrong, right? Like the reason that the power is out, you know, I'm going to steal this TV, those things are completely unconnected, but they happen every time anyways. And yeah, I guess in my mind, if you don't give in to the demands of the mob, then you die. And the, like, that's when something is wrong is when that happens. But a mob of people impressing their will upon whoever has all of the food or who has the money to buy the food or the political connections to get the food in, um, that that's fine. And that's how it works too. Cause if you, you know, we elect our officials and if you want to get elected again, you have to do what the people elected you to do. Yeah, a couple things. Um, That's what James Madison described in Federalist 51 as the tyranny of the masses. Mm -hmm. And it's what Aristotle described as why democracy is the least, one of the least favorable governments, because it devolves into that mob rule. Yeah. And that's part of why our founding fathers designed our federal system as a republic was to help prevent to help give us protections from tyranny from a single person such as a monarch or a dictator and a tyranny from the masses the mob
which is why I find it so unfavorable. To say that everything's fine if we just give in to the mob's demands. Right, the, in... I don't know what else you're going to base your decisions as a ruler or leader or senator on besides the will of the mob. Like there shouldn't be another out. Like to me, if there's an outside factor beyond that, that's unethical. And they're going to. Well, well no, yeah, and, and, and I get that. And absolutely, our elected officials as being elected should be representatives of the interests of those that have elected them. Right. But I think that is fundamentally different than saying that people have a right to have government help them be successful because if government doesn't, we'll kill them. And then that's even farther removed from the general attitude from most people today that... And this goes back to the internal locus of control versus external locus of control thing. If it's government's job to make sure I don't go hungry, if it's government's job to make sure that I have universal basic income, if it's government's job to do all those things, I am placing not only the responsibility for what through most of human history we have understood as onus on the individual into the hands of the government to make sure those things happen, which by default also means we don't get a say into how those things are handled because we are outsourcing that responsibility. Um, the other thing that it's doing is saying that you have no control or ownership of your life, right? That external locus of control. All of the problems that I have today are because of a failure in the system somewhere. Therefore, I don't have to change any of my toxic bad behaviors we just have to change the flaws in the system, mm -hmm. right? It's creating that environment for that mob to be unhealthy, to be toxic, to be destructive, to be demanding, rather than creating an environment where that mob all looks in the mirror and decides that I need to get to work so I can afford these things, or I need to create this business so I can help feed people, or I need to do this, that, or whatever, in order to take ownership of my life to ensure my own success. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the American dream, right? Which allegedly is what we're doing. Um, you know, if you have no money today, you can get money by doing certain things and have money tomorrow. And the if that's not true, then people are gonna they're gonna be angry. But I do think that that is true that you can yes. build the American dream. I mean, people do it all the time. 
Yeah, but it and and again, the American dream, and I, I have this conversation as the civics teacher, I have this conversation with my students all the time. Um that unfortunately, if you do a random poll for a thousand people in the streets and ask them what the American dream is, it's gonna be something along the lines of financial success. Mm-hmm. And I think that's wrong. The American dream should not now it might be the consensus for you know 60 percent of the united states to have this idea in which case by definition then their idea is correct for what the american dream is um but money doesn't make you happy money doesn't mean success though they're not they're not isomorphic right it's a false equivocation it can help right if i have money i can open a business doing something that i find meaningful i can invest in whatever and i can find purpose in my life but there's a reason why we have in western societies the most affluent societies on the planet right now the highest levels of mental health disorders suicidality anxiety depression all of those are off the charts compared to some of the poorest aboriginal regions on the planet now the next question is why well because the indigenous tribe in the amazon might literally be dirt poor but every single one of them has a community that they're embedded in that helps support them when life is hard You have to bury a parent, sibling gets bit by a venomous snake, whatever. Life is going to be hard. And you have that healthy support structure with which to see you through that. And in turn, gives them that community to feed back into to add meaning and purpose to their life. And it is that meaning and purpose that provides the armor against the inherent tragedy of life. And I think if we're truthful and honest that that is the american dream that everyone should have an opportunity to find meaning in their life however they see fit to live a meaningful life pending that that doesn't intrude on other people's natural rights to do the same right now if you can make some money along the way great but that's not going to do anything for you. What is going to make you successful is embodying a mode of being that provides you with meaning and purpose. And it is that mode of being that is full of meaning and purpose that is going to afford you those opportunities to be happy when happiness blesses you. And that is going to, or I should say that is a more accurate definition of success. Philosophically, metaphysically, ontologically, you know, whatever of the other ologies you want to bring in and has been for most of human history. Right. You can go back and read the ancients from Rome and Greece. Now they're a little bit different. Right. The Greeks would say that it is that 
directly that purpose that provides you meaning in life and can get you happiness. The Romans would say that, like, you know, I mean, there were Romans that well, I mean, you know, look at the most successful Romans in history. You think of Julius Caesar, Gaius Marius, Lucius Sola, right? They were fabulously rich, these generals. But they didn't care about the money. What was the money for? The money was for them to bring back, to earn honors with, to build the public works, to have the triumphs through the streets. Because it was those successes that they could take their financial success and feed into that earned them honor, right? Mm -hmm. That was their pathway to find meaning in their life was to go and conquer some place to, for lack of better terms, steal all the wealth there and bring it back to Rome. Not because they wanted to be personally wealthy, although I will admit it is better to uh, be depressed in a Mercedes Benz than it is in a Ford Pinto, right? <laughs> let's, let's be honest. Um, but that wasn't the point. Being rich wasn't the point. That was just the avenue that many of these successful Romans chose as their method of getting to the the end point getting to the top of the mountain right the financial success was the means the purposeful means of attaining the honor which would mean that their life had meaning that they would be remembered that they would that their family name would continue on that they would be able to have the next tomb right next to their father next to their grandfather next to their great-grandfather right um that in four or five generations, their great grandkids would see the bust of them in their ancestor room and know their lineage and where they came from. That is the value that they had there. Right. And I'm thinking that like people, the mob does tolerate hardship when, like you were saying, there's a payoff, there's a legacy. Um, I'm thinking specifically of like rations during the world wars and everyone was, you know, proud that they were eating off of this and that stay at home moms went away and they're making ammo and, um, you know, Rosie Riveter, all of that was a point of pride and that suffering and that hunger and hardship was, you know, so I would, it's not impossible to starve the mob or to put restrictions on life and liberty and say, no, you have to go to war. Um, and people will buy into it if there is, you know, some type of promise that it's going to pay off. And I think that piece might be missing for a lot of youths today because of the 24-hour news cycle and push notifications for every mass shooting that happens and, um, you know, the news, in my well, opinion. And pop culture and yeah. the media that they consume, right? Most of our youth are exposed to no other avenues to quote-unquote success other than professional athlete, professional musician, 
or drug dealer. And for 95% of the youth in America, only one of those three are actually attainable tomorrow. Right. The other two are out of reach for almost everybody. Um, And, you know, let's, we're running out of time, but let's just back up here really quickly and mention that the mob tolerating those artificially imposed hardships from people in power to make things happen we could make the very real argument that those people in power should not have those powers. Mm-hmm. That that is outside the scope of what they have been elected to do. And we see this a lot, especially from like the 1900s on, that there's been an increasingly top-heavy federal overreach as our government apparatus becomes, for lack of better terms, more and more totalitarian with what they think they have jurisdiction over. And I think part of that is what's conditioning the ordinary people to feel like the government should Right. Because, I mean, and, and, and you can't blame them. Take an, and your average high schooler today. That's all they've ever known. Right. How the world works today is how they and their teenage brain conceptualizes as the world has always worked. Right. Um, it is like multiple generations of that conditioning. And as such, that is what has kind of made it. feel callous to say oh no jimmy it's up to you to get your ass up and go to work every day right but it, it it's it is and to some very real degree um going back to that the cognitive mapping where people will tolerate a known hardship over just the unknown in general um more and more and more people are happy being a slave to the system as long as their basic needs are met than taking a risk and owning their successes and failures by being the one that's solely responsible for the conditions of their own lives. And I think part of that is because it's easier if the system fails, if you're suffering and you can blame the government, that's an easier pill to swallow than if you're suffering and you can only blame yourself. Mm-hmm. I guess like, like if we're going like, what's the safe bet and what's the not safe bet, which would be a person who is risk averse and a person who is risky we tend, I do think we value risk averse behavior a little more with, um, you know, social like praise and, you know, people who go to school for fine art are get a lot of pushback because that's risky. You probably won't make any money. You're probably going to have to go back. You might not be good enough. Um, versus someone who goes to school for accounting, they're like, oh, great, you're going to make money, you're going to be fine. So I do think we 
those risk averse choices are yeah i think if someone is homeless because they put all of their money on the stock market and they were stupid and didn't pull it out in time or was for sure that it was going to turn around it didn't you would say like well that was kind of stupid wasn't it um you should have got a savings account you should have been risk averse you should have planned for the future you should have you know only uh you know played what you could afford to lose and so i think like the idea of like putting yourself out there and trying might lead to more crash and burns than taking a much more conservative approach like you know i'm in this apartment and i'm watching the kids and i've got you know they go to school but i've got kids at home so i can't work so i'm getting on benefits um that's the risk averse option that's the one they're going to choose because saying like i can do this i'm going to make it work it's my time i'm going to be a jockey i'm ready you'd call that person stupid and then they get their kids taken away because they're not doing what they need to do well, and also too, we're we're evolutionarily designed to err on the side of caution. Yeah. Right. So I'm not sure that like push yourself and like really dig deep and find that thing that's gonna work is as socially acceptable as it sounds, because the people who do that are pretty harshly punished by their actions and then also the people around them who don't have a lot of sympathy. <laughs> Well, in, in that particular example, it takes a balancing of personal interests and market demands, right? So and, and this is this is what I counsel my students all the time. I typically tell them the most meaningful jobs tend to pay the least mm -hmm. because generally through the meaning you're able to tolerate the lower pay because your life is meaningful right look at me i'm i'm a high school teacher we get paid shit there's there's not a single person in the school building that is a teacher for the paycheck mm -hmm. but the job is meaningful and it matters right and as such we're willing to take less money in order to have more meaning in our lives because the meaning matters more than the money does mm -hmm. Now, a wise person would balance that with market demands. Say you're just absolutely passionate about getting a degree in underwater basket weaving. You're going to be hungry more days than you're not, right? Now, if you could find a way to couple that with market demands of, you know, innovation and find an, a niche that you can create a product that is similar to what you're passionate about, but there's a, demarket, a market demand for it, right? Now you have that that healthy balance and you get the best of both worlds. You're doing something that you're passionate about and then you find meaningful and you're able to make a living out of that, right? I think that it's it's both the extremes. The mob doesn't get to just demand that we need to be successful and the mob also doesn't get to demand that we get to do whatever we want and be successful, right? It takes a balance between the two. Um, yeah. And there's people time. really good at Fortnite who are making millions on millions on millions of dollars yeah but it's such a small percentage though we get that survivor bias it's the same thing with being like playing in the nfl mm -hmm. right for every 17 year old kid that makes a million dollars playing Fortnite, there's a million more kids that have squandered their whole life away 
right? Or they've they've taken that risk and they've lost it because they they didn't they didn't have that healthy balance. The video game right in at the end. We totally yeah. got off topic, but I like that better. No, no, it it was. Um, yeah, we'll come back and we'll do more um, role acquisition and play and games as a fundamental as aspect of human psychology next time for part two.